0: This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rolheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FrancisFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University Chicago. I'm here with my friends Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is executive editor and vice president of National Catholic Reporter. Father Dan is the director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. How have you been? And Heidi, I especially want to hear about all the cookies that you've been baking. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, happy third week of Advent to all of our listeners out there. We The Christmas preparations are continuing, at least in our household. We have our tree up. The Christmas letters have been printed. And this past weekend, I got together with a number of our relatives, my mom, my sister, my nephews. Uh, wife and my niece, and we baked over a 1,000, maybe close to 2,000 cookies, which we then divide up among us, and we share a lot of them with our neighbors. So don't worry, I won't be eating all those cookies. (laughs) But uh, Christmas feels like it's coming so soon because the way the calendar and the school year is this year, my kids are done with school this Friday, and so I'll be taking off for two weeks myself at the end of the year. So it's a busy, crazy week, but lots of Great holiday preparations. How are your holiday preparations going, Dan?
2: I feel very similar to you about the calendar business. It is um, just been moving at neck break speed around here. It's it's, it's always a crazy time of year, of course, an end of an academic semester. The holidays quickly approaching. The sun setting so early in the afternoon, feeling like we're in uh, eternal darkness here. And on top of that, it also coincides with a lot of quarterly meetings, so board of trustees meetings and travel around that these days, which is generally very good to see colleagues and to see friends hosted some uh, a planning committee for a conference that we're going to host here at St. Mary's in a, in a couple years and that was wonderful so all good things very busy things haven't thought that much about Christmas but I I you know woke up on Sunday and went to the the mother church here for the Sisters of the Holy Cross at the Church of Loreto and was reminded oh my gosh it's rejoice sunday already it's godet day and lighting that pink candle and so it's a whirlwind so I to be honest with you I am I'm not yet into the the Christmas uh, spirit, I I feel uh, on one hand bad about not fully embracing Advent, but I I feel like every year, and and maybe David, you could remember back many years of of our recording this podcast around this time of year. I feel like that's always a thing, and uh, regular listeners will know that I, I basically have tried to make peace with that reality and to really embrace the O Antiphon. So beginning. December seventeenth for that last week. That's when I lean heavy into what remains of Advent and, and hopeful anticipation, and then of course Christmas. Things get to slow down a little bit. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm, I'm planning to be back with my family in New York. I'm um, looking forward to that for Christmas, especially after last year where we didn't get together. Everybody was Christmas was on Zoom, so praying that people stay healthy and well and continue to get vaccinated and boosted. And you know, that's that. David, what's going
0: on in your neck of the woods? So folks may recall that I'm not always the most kind of Charles Dickens-y when it comes to Christmas. And so we do now have our home decorated. There is a tree up and the ornaments around the tree. And I, I absented myself for part of that process for complex reasons, but I'm very happy that the tree is up. I'm happy that the lights are up. I do enjoy that stuff once it's there. It's the process of getting it there that sometimes can push some buttons for me due to some old stuff. But I'm really enjoying watching my kids enjoy all of this. And as I've mentioned before, my wife's parents live nearby. And so we've had two households of Christmas cheer going on. And so that's all been a lot of fun. But the year end for me, much like you all have been saying, is a very hectic time. And it's not just wrapping up the ends of a semester. But because I also do a lot of audio work, it's also prepping everything for next year. So part of my Christmas and Advent celebrations include buying new external hard drives and formatting them and getting them all ready with the various projects that will be happening and updating editorial calendars for 2022 and getting everything ready to go for that. So I actually find that stuff really enjoyable. So I've been enjoying this time of the year. For me, it's the most wonderful time of the year because I'm an organization (laughs) freak. But on that front, I mean you know, the family is really driving the Christmas and Advent celebrations, and I'm enjoying being along for the ride.
2: I'll just say, too, one weird—I would consider it weird for me personally, because prior to this December, I used to find those radio stations in in every kind of local uh, jurisdiction that play Christmas music 24 hours a day beginning on Thanksgiving terrible and annoying. But for some reason— Maybe I'm like the Grinch who's grown a heart, or something like this, or, or it, maybe it's the pandemic has shocked me into some sort of weird Mariah Carey induced sentimentalism. But I find myself now as I'm in the car listening to that channel and in actually enjoying it. It's very weird. I don't know. I don't understand it, but I'm rolling with it.
1: So, Dan, maybe your heart is growing, but let me just correct you. They don't start after Thanksgiving. The Christmas (laughs) stations start the first week of November.
2: Oh, my gosh. I'm glad I didn't discover it then.
1: (laughs) We don't listen to it in our house, but in the car, I've been listening to a lot of repeated Christmas carols on that station as well. Hey, I was also down in your neck of the woods, David, on Friday night and your old stomping ground, Dan, at Catholic Theological Union for the launch of Michael Laughlin's book on the Catholic Church's ministry to people with HIV and AIDS. So that was a fun event on Friday night, and I just shout out to all the folks I saw there, I'm, I think a couple uh, Francis Effect listeners as well as other NCR fans too. So it was nice to see all the folks there. Even Cardinal Supich showed up for the book launch.
0: Well, and I'm going to be interviewing Michael O'Loughlin for Things Not Seen coming up in, I believe it's in about a week, I'm going to interview him and then it'll be right after the first of the year that that interview goes live. So uh, listeners, please be looking out for that as well. He's been on the show before and we had a really wonderful conversation about his podcast. And this book, is an extension and a deepening of those stories that he was telling in the podcast. So I'm excited to get a chance to sit down with him again and hear about how the reporting has grown with this project because it was incredibly powerful in terms of going deeper into these stories. It's a very important set of stories to tell. Coming up on the show today, we are going to be dealing with three topics. We're going to be talking about the canonization process for Dorothy Day, the founder of the Catholic Worker Movement. We're going to be talking about some recent events regarding New Ways Ministry. And we're going to be doing a year-end wrap-up in our third segment. So all that's ahead, so please stay with us. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment.
1: Welcome back to the Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here today with Dan Horan and David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss uh, the current news and events from the perspective of our shared Catholic faith. On the recent Feast of the Immaculate Conception, Cardinal Timothy Dolan, the Archbishop of New York, presided at Mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral. With him in the sanctuary, were 17 sealed cardboard boxes weighing in at a reported two-thirds of a ton. Inside the boxes are the collected documents and testimonies that are being presented to the Vatican in making the case for the canonization of Dorothy Day as a saint. The documents were compiled by the Dorothy Day Guild, formed after St. John Paul II opened the cause for Day's canonization in 2000. Last Wednesday's Mass was a formal send-off for their two decades of work. Dorothy Day's, as listeners may know, was the co-founder of the Catholic Worker Movement. Day's commitment to living in solidarity with the poor and to a way of life grounded in Catholic social teaching is also a challenge for many Catholics, including the hierarchy, to examine their own relationship to money and power. The cause for canonization is not without controversy. In fact, Dorothy Day herself was very skeptical of the idea of sainthood. Robert Ellsberg, who edited the Catholic Worker newspaper in the 1970s and who edited the first published collection of Dorothy Day's diaries, told the Associated Press recently that, Day believed we were all called to be saints, unquote. David, what should we be thinking about this next step in the cause for canonization of Dorothy Day?
0: Well, I think first of all, we should all take caution based upon something that it's reported that Day said. It's not entirely clear if she said it or not. Don't call me a saint. I don't want to be dismissed that easily. And I've been working with a, a student in an independent study this semester. And one of the things that we've been talking about as we've been reading various saints from the history of the church is what is it like when a person is reporting that, or when a person is called a saint? Does that mean that Every interaction that people had with them in day-to-day life was a kind of hallowed interaction, or were they like you and me, where they got cranky and they were short-tempered and occasionally they would snap at people? At My sense is that if we look at someone like Dorothy Day, and if we we're going to say, well, she is going to be canonized as a saint because of X, Y, and Z, we also have to bring in the fact that she lived her daily life in the way that many of us live our daily lives, and that is she was cantankerous. She spoke truth truth to people that needed correction. She was occasionally short-tempered, and she oftentimes was reported to say, if you think that I'm angry, just imagine how much anger I'm holding back. I actually love that about Dorothy Day, and it actually makes me feel a lot more comfortable about the other saints that I interact with and think about in my kind of day-to-day liturgical life, because... I very much like the idea that saints are not some kind of holy, hallowed people with glowing halos all the time, but rather that they are everyday people and that something in their lives was pointed towards God in a peculiar way that brings the rest of us closer to God. But that's my beginning take. I'd love to hear what you all think.
2: I think you bring up something really important, uh, and that is the humanity of the saints. Um, As I often like to tell my students, you know— Every saint is with sin. Every saint was imperfect. Every saint, uh, and when I say saint, I'm talking about the capital S canonized saints, but also there's the lowercase s saint, which is everybody, and that's the way St. Paul addressed the early Christian community. That's what we're called to strive for. And I'm thinking in particular of Pope Francis's uh, apostolic exhortation, Rejoice and Be Glad, where he talked about the saints next door, and he talked about the kind of ordinariness of seeking to live a holy life. I think the other thing that comes to mind is what is a saint in this capital S sense that Dorothy Day is being evaluated for? And it's, I think, important for us to remember that a saint is not, as you rightly note, David, it's not about being perfect. It's not about some sort of special power or abilities that an individual had. I think sometimes people can fall into that, and that might be what Dorothy Day meant about being dismissed so easily, which is when putting... These uh, holy women and men that we revere and that we pray to, and, and because the community of saints is not just about a special elite club in heaven, it's about our unity with all women and men who have been baptized in the past, in the present, in the future, across God's eternal time. And so we believe, as you said, interact with, that we have connections with, that we continue to relate to and and intercede for us and so forth. But the capital S saints, all that simply means, the word canonization means they're added to a list. And the canon, the list of saints, is those who are recognized to be public models of Christian living and that are uh, added to universal veneration. But there are lots of non-capital S saints that are not in the canon Pope Francis points to this. David, you were making reference to this. And I think it's something we should think about because I have very mixed feelings about the way capital S saints are made, what it takes and literally what it costs to get onto that book, into that canon, into that list, onto that calendar. And so I think there are questions that are that are worth exploring about how people are added to that list has changed over the centuries. And today, it's a very political – it's a very – it's always been political because it involved humans, but it's very expensive in a literal sense. So I, I have some reservations. I also have some thoughts, too, about about how – Dorothy Day's life and legacy is being narrated or re narrated in a kind of ongoing hagiographical redux. Heidi, what do you think about all that?
1: Yes, I have some thoughts about that, too. And we had a columnist or an essayist who shared some of those thoughts the day before the Mass that we referenced. Let me just first say that I'm very pro-St. Dorothy Day, and I have a little bit of a connection in that before the Guild took over the organization of her canonization process, it was begun by the Claritians here in Chicago. And a guy that I worked with at U.S. Catholic there actually was involved in the early organizing of some of the materials before it was handed off to the Guild. And also as a editor of a Catholic publication and a woman editor, I already uh, pray to, in my mind, St. Dorothy Day for uh, veneration and for help. But it has been controversial and in part... Not just because of the comment she made, which our essayist did dig up and, and find, but because the argument that she can be, like, once her story becomes common and everyone's drawing on it, that it, be, it she can be kind of, I think he, he used the term, neutralized with praise. And that people who otherwise are not maybe really committed to some of the same values, and let's be honest, pretty radical life and commitment to Catholic social teaching that Dorothy Day was, can use her or use portions of her to promote things that maybe don't accurately represent, you know, what her life might have really stood for. So, I, you know, he used some examples, and I can share this uh, link with our readers to this essay, but use some examples from the hierarchy of people who are holding her up who otherwise are not Maybe committed to some of the real radical hospitality and social justice that she was.
2: Yeah, I also yeah, I I think that's exactly the concern that I have. It's interesting. I, I find that it's really important whether we're talking about canonized saints from eight centuries ago or two thousand years ago or in the last uh, decade or two to be very honest about the complexity of their histories and their fallibility. And I use that term advisedly because I'm thinking about the controversies that continue to exist and will unfold around the canonization of recent pontiffs. I mean, John Paul II is a very controversial figure, not just because of his ecclesial identity or theology or this sort of stuff, but in large part because near the end of his pontificate, he enabled the cover-up that he denied the the reality of, or at least the seriousness, of the clergy abuse crisis and its global reach. And there are real questions we have here. And yet, on the other hand, he was clearly a very prayerful, very uh, holy person. And I think I'm reminded of the great work of a friend and, and a fellow theologian named Brian Flanagan, who teaches at a university in, in Virginia. He wrote a book a couple years ago called Stumbling and Holiness. It's an excellent book, and it is, it's a book of ecclesiology. It's about how do we understand not just the one holy Catholic Church, but the fact that we are at the same time a, a community of believers. We are an ecclesia, a gathering, a community, a church that is both holy and sinful, and not just individually. We're not just the uh, some of the parts of individual holy and sinful people, we are also as an institution, right? holy and sinful. And, and I think the clergy abuse crisis, I think the effects of colonization and colonialism, I think the sexism that exists, the, you know, the homophobia we might add today, as well as the complicity in systemic racism in the slave trade and, and all of these great evils that were perpetuated by the church as an institution. We need to acknowledge that. And so I, I think I, I don't want to shy away from, uh, and it's not to kind of drag down. People might hear this, and, and, and I, we can name this about anyone. I'm fond of going back to the historical sources. Around Francis of Assisi and showing that those who lived with him, those early chronicles, those who have the early sort of personal anecdotal narratives, who, you know, were in the room where it happened, as it were, don't always tell favorable things. Francis made mistakes, he sinned. But the question is, what does one do in their imperfection? You know, do you. Do you seek reconciliation? Is there conversion? Is there an openness to God's spirit in changing your life and calling you to something or not? I think to me that's holiness too. And it's rooted as St. Paul says, right? What what's the line where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, or something to that effect?
0: Well, and I, I just to build off of that, Dan, one of the things that I have mixed feelings about is some of the ways, as we've been saying, that Dorothy Day has been characterized. Cardinal Dolan, in his remarks from the Feast of the Immaculate Conception at the Mass, he highlighted some of the ways in which Dorothy Day was a dissolute person. You know, she had a child out of wedlock, those kinds of things. I'm intrigued by presenting that aspect of Dorothy Day in the context of canonization, in part because, again, this semester I've been reading, among others, St. Therese of Lisieux or St. Therese of the Little Flower, and in reading her her story of a soul, she was so eager to be considered a saint and so that was all that she was working towards and she was trying to model her entire life towards being a saint in complete contrast to Dorothy Day, who by all accounts was trying to do not the opposite but just wasn't interested in that as an end and a goal and What I, as impressive and as important as St. Therese of Lisieux is for my own personal spirituality, I actually find the earthiness of Dorothy Day to be refreshing. I find the reassurance that a person can be considered for sainthood, even though they live a life pretty much like the rest of us live, that to me is actually a more powerful witness in some ways than a person who tries to live a kind of narrow walk of holiness at every moment.
1: Yeah, and this whole idea of whether to accept somebody into the official canon or not and whether it requires medical miracles And it involves this like boxes and boxes of materials that must be gone through to examine and judge someone's whole life. I mean, I understand the reason for the process, but it is also interesting in contemporary times how different it is. So there's a lot more saved materials, whether they're written or even as we get closer to current times, whether we have video and audio of people when they were alive, a lot is known about Day's life because she wrote. She was a writer and wrote memoirs. I saw someone commenting on social media that while they admired Dorothy Day, they didn't think she could be a saint because she wasn't always what some people might consider a great parent or mother. And I know her personal life was explored in that book that her granddaughter wrote a couple years ago, The World Will Be Saved by Beauty. And I just wonder, like, contemporary women, a 20th century woman, what? how will she be judged for sainthood in a way that maybe St. Francis back in, going back farther and being a man in a religious order wouldn't be. But that said, it's an imperfect process. And I do know the, how important saints have been throughout my life, both the official ones and the unofficial ones in terms of providing a model for me on how to strive to at least live parts of my life, even if I wouldn't necessarily you know, be the same kind of mother that she was.
2: And I think you also highlight something that goes back to this concern we were sharing earlier, uh, that I was talking about this kind of hagiographical retelling of her life. By definition, hagiography follows certain patterns. And so if you go back and look in the history of Christian spirituality and you look at The ways that the stories of the saints have been developed, going back to really early times like the second century, there's usually benchmarks that appear over and over again, such that you get this kind of trope or stereotype of what a holy person looks like. And there's certain, obviously, you know, you made reference to the role of gender, which is so important. There's certain kind of tropes for male saints and certain kind of characteristics for female saints. And we hear that playing out on social media, as you said, today, where what are the tropes, the expectations that modern people have? Whether they're fair or not, it's a fair question to engage about what constitutes, what do we imagine when we think of as saints. I think there's something to be said about representation as well, and that I just don't want Dorothy Day to be whitewashed. She was not always a great mother. She was not always a great person to live with. She was not always a great boss. She she was not always famously, much like Mother Teresa of Calcutta, who was not an easy person to live with famously. She was very hard to deal with. So was Francis of Assisi. So was Claire. Claire was not... We have these tame you know watered down versions of saints that that arise from our trying to box them into these hagiographical kind of contours. I, I think there's something to be said about Dorothy Day. Possibly breaking that mold in a good way, but I also think there are others as a friar I and this is a f- brother friar from my own province. Michael judge raises similar questions for a lot of people. He is already venerated as Dorothy Day has I mean you're talking about two New Yorkers in this case but but there are lots of questions about are there value is there value in him being added to the canon capital S saint. Somebody that I I know very well in terms of scholarship and research, and I spent a lot of time thinking about and reading and, and learning about is, is Thomas Merton. He's another person who is undoubtedly an incredibly holy person, a prayerful person and somebody who has led to the conversion and the growth spiritually and otherwise in terms of social activism and all kinds of things, many, many, many people over decades. But here's a question. What are the pros and cons of trying to pursue that capital S sainthood being added to the list. So I don't know. On the one hand, it's a done deal in that it's not a hypothetical at Dorothy Day. The process is, un- is unfolding, and so we'll see how it goes. I just hope in the process along the way we don't lose what we might say is like the historical or the real Dorothy Day for the hagiographical Dorothy Day.
0: Well, we asked Dorothy Day, please be praying for us and for all of our listeners as we move in from Advent to Christmas, and we will certainly be looking back at this issue as the process of canonization continues to unfold. But for right now, we're going to leave the conversation there. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment.
2: Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with David Dolt and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks we get together, well, you know what we do. As the entire church continues to move through the process of consultation as part of the Synod on Synodality, there was a bit of a controversy over some resources on the webpage of the Vatican Office in Charge of the Synod. The church is currently in the local diocesan consultation phase of the three-year synod process, which will culminate in an international meeting of bishops in Rome in October 2023. The controversy over the resources page involved a video from New Ways Ministry, a ministry here in the United States for LGBTQ Catholics. One of the New Ways video webinars was initially included in the resource page, compiled by the General Secretariat for the Synod of Bishops. The 75-minute recorded webinar was titled, From the Margins to the Center, a Webinar on LGBTQ Catholics and Synodality, and it featured a Fordham University theologian. But on December 7th, the video was removed reportedly after complaints from some conservative Catholic media here in the United States. But yesterday, on Sunday, December 12th, the video uh, has been republished to the resources page, and an apology has been issued by an official from the Vatican Synod Office. The Synod Office's communications manager, Terry Bonaventura, writing in the office's newsletter, apologized for the, quote, pain-caused, He further promised, quote, not to exclude those who wish to carry out the synodal process with a sincere heart and a spirit of dialogue and real discernment, end quote. Bonaventura also invited LGBTQ groups and others who feel that they live on the, quote, margins of the church to share their materials with the synod office. New Ways Ministry Executive Director Francis D. Bernardo welcomed what he called, quote, an unprecedented apology from a Vatican office, end quote, that amplifies Pope Francis's welcome to LGBTQ people, and he encouraged all dioceses to set up channels of communication with LGBTQ communities. De Bernardo said, quote, God indeed works in mysterious ways, turning what could have been great harm into an instrument of greater connection, end quote. Heidi, this controversy also resulted in new ways releasing some recent correspondence with Pope Francis which NCR reported. How does that fit into all of this?
1: Yes, this has been a very fast moving story with it changing so quickly before we we at NCR could even get some of our stories posted, but in an interesting twist, after the webinar was removed from the website of resources, Frank D Bernardo decided that he wanted to released this correspondence that had been sent from Pope Francis to New Ways and to one of their co-founders, Sister Janine Gramick, over the past year or so. And the correspondence is clearly praising the ministry. It calls Sister Janine a valiant woman who had suffered much for her ministry. One was uh, typewritten and one was handwritten. The Pope thanks New Ways for their ministry And this is very important, not just because it's another one of these times where Pope Francis is reaching out to someone, but throughout their history, New Ways Ministry has been criticized by various people in the church, including by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops back in 2010, because of the group's support for same-sex marriage. So um, also the founders of New Ways Ministry, so Father Robert Uh, Nugent and Sister Janine both suffered quite a bit for this, for very early ministry to LGBTQ Catholics and eventually barred both of them from participating in in the ministry. So for Sister Janine, who's still living, uh, Father Nugent is deceased, to be able to have that news that the Pope is saying these things about her and about the ministry that she dedicated her life to, I think, is a real positive. And then to have the latest wrinkle that happened uh, just yesterday as we're recording that there's an apology from the communications person at the secretariat in the Vatican, and the video is now reposted. And really for the New Ways ministry folks to say, wow, after all that craziness last week to end up in this place, and it really reaffirms the importance of all voices being heard during the Synod. So in the end, it turns out to be kind of a plus, but it was a little bit of a crazy path there.
2: Those of us at St. Mary's College, we had a heads up about this. I'm excited now that it's public. We we hosted uh, Sister Janine and another New Ways uh, staffer for a series of events hosted by the Center for Spirituality that I direct here on campus back in the first week of, of October. And in her public lecture, she gave an address. She mentioned this correspondence, this ongoing correspondence. So it wasn't a secret in a way, but it wasn't made public either in the sense it has now been made public. It's interesting. Sister Janine shared a lot of of the background and, like you mentioned, Heidi, the meaningfulness of this correspondence of the popes reaching out. And I think that the tenor of the apology as well from the Vatican official, I think, reflects exactly um, the right tone. It's weird because usually ecclesial offices tend to make Controversies worse. Uh, at least I, that's how we're used to it on this side of the Atlantic. But I think, you know, it's important too. Uh, the reason I bring up Sister Janine's presentation here at St. Mary's is because I think there were a number of people, including some who attended the lecture, who were c- concerned in light of some of the pushback that New Ways Ministry and Sister Janine herself has received over the years for her real pioneering ministry. And what I Heard and saw reaffirmed, and I think what everybody else recognized too, is she talked about how she came to this ministry over many decades and its importance, is a recognition of a few things. One is she's a deeply prayerful, spiritual, grounded minister of the church who is deeply faithful to her vocation and to the church itself. And it is out of that call, that gospel living to accompany, to walk with, to, to be in relationship with those that are excluded. I mean, there is nothing more, Pope Francis asked, nothing more evangelical in the spirit of the gospel and Jesus than to minister to those who are being rejected, and in this case, oftentimes, rejected by the church itself, the church's institution. I think Sister Janine made, made an interesting point in that one of the ways the New Ways ministry staff thinks about, okay, well, how do we respond to critics who say, well, but the church teaches that same-sex relationships are inappropriate or sinful or what have you. Sister Jeanine says, we're not necessarily calling into question that this needs to be thrown out or this sort of thing. There are obviously problems that they have with this, but she says, too often, particularly in the U.S. context, but the church more broadly, has begun their kind of evaluation of ministry or of relationships or of individuals with a question of sexual ethics. And she said, what, if, what happens if we began not first, not that sexual ethics are not important, that, that moral theology around sexuality and sexual expression is very important, but what if we began with social ethics first? How do we treat those who are excluded? How do we treat those who are minoritized and marginalized, those who are suffering in any way? And it reminds me, of course, of the opening lines of God Aim Spes, the griefs, the joys and hopes and the griefs and anxieties, the sorrows of the, the people of the world are those of the Christian community as well. And so I think there's an opportunity there in the spirit of Father Jim Martin's book, Building Bridges. This is a bridge that can be built, and I'm really happy to see those Vatican officials make very public statements that I have no doubt are upsetting not only the alt-right Catholic media in the United States, but there are a fair number of uh, bishops in the U.S. who are going to be very unhappy about
0: this. Well, I want to add to what you've just said that one kind of shift from kind of moral theology or sexual ethics to social ethics, there's another piece that goes on here too, and, and we see this oftentimes in our institutions, and it's at the level of ontology, where people who purport to be speaking for the church will very casually make statements that make it sound as if people who are same-sex attracted, lesbians, gays, or people who feel their gender is in some tension with the way that they're experiencing their bodies, that these people just can't exist, that somehow they are ontologically incorrect or that they're ontologically dismissible, where a person is speaking from their heartfelt experience and someone will basically just wipe their hands and say, nope, I'm not going to listen to that because God has said that it has to be this way. And when removing something from a website is a small instance of erasure. But it's, a, it's indicative of a much larger kind of erasure and one that I think is unconscionable for exactly the reasons that you're saying. We are called to, to care for the vulnerable. And in our particular situation here in America, some of the most vulnerable populations are those who are identified as being other from the norms sexually or in terms of their gender. So to me, this goes very deep on many levels.
2: Well, I'm so glad you brought that up, David. This is going to be a little bit self-serving, but my 2019 book, Catholicity and Emerging Personhood, a Contemporary Theological Anthropology, this is exactly the question that I engage, which is not necessarily the, the more urgent question of what do you do with the person before you that's being othered and dismissed and sought to be erased as you're describing, but to step back, and and here we can get a little philosophical and theological nerdy about it, which is this question of ontology or theological anthropology. What do we understand to be the characteristics of human existence and human being? And you're exactly right that there is a outmoded, outdated, I would say inappropriate philosophical foundation that is still being presumed that it leads exactly to what you say. It is a literal erasure. They say, well, you do not exist. That's oftentimes the language or this is not real. So I, I think that's a really important point regardless and even Pope Francis supports the legal protection of civil unions so let's just be clear about that we can make this distinction the pope himself has made that but i think there's a step further which is to say secondarily and this is something i've written about in ncr and other people have talked about as well particularly around the t of the lgbtq world which is a hot button issue right now the controversies around transgender identity and gender expression and and one of the things that i'm constantly finding myself kind of screaming about is the people who want to dismiss the reality of transgender persons fail to hear and listen to the experience of these individuals. It's an, it's an arrogance, and assumption, a predication of one's own experience as normative for everybody else. And that's always at the root of you know misogyny. It's at the root of racism. It's at the root of xenophobia. It's at the root of homophobia and transphobia. It says that I don't experience this. I don't understand this. I can't relate to it. Therefore, you're the one who's wrong. <laughs> so really important points. And, and there's a lot of work to do. There's other work being done. I think of the moral theologian, Craig Ford, up at St. Norbert College, a good friend and, and colleague of mine, you know, who's, who's dealing with some of these questions in a profound way as well. And of course, Father Brian Massingale, among others. Yeah, Heidi, what do you think about all that?
1: Well, I'm struck by you uh, mentioning what Pope Francis might think, because the release of these letters, of course, reveal another peek into how he deals with some of these controversial issues. We mentioned at the top of the show about our colleague Michael Lachlan's book as well, and he also received a letter from Pope Francis that was shared publicly in a New York Times essay in which the Pope praised the ministry of people who reached out to and ministered through the church to people with HIV and AIDS. And so both in those examples during the AIDS crisis in the 80s and 90s and continuing today, and as well as the ministry of New Ways Ministry, especially as it was founded by Sister Janine and Father Nugent, was to deal with the suffering people in front of them, to not talk about church teaching in the theoretical. And you don't see Pope Francis necessarily saying, I'm going to change church teaching on some of these issues, but you see him praising people who are ministering to actual people and human beings who are suffering or hurting or feeling excluded or, or whatever the case may be. And so you mentioned about the letters and I too had heard through the grapevine that this correspondence uh, from the Pope to New Way's ministry existed. And I think some of these people are sometimes reluctant to release the correspondence and use it in some sort of way to advance an agenda. But yet in this latest instance with the New Ways video on the Synod website, that had already started because somebody who saw that it had been tweeted like, hey, isn't this cool that this video is on the Synod website? Then the next thing you know, you have somebody from the United States complaining to the Synod office and it getting pulled. So there was already somebody started with this sort of political playing with what is a very simple Um, Non controversial thing to put this thing about LGBTQ and synodality on their resources page when everyone agrees that LGBTQ Catholics should also be part of the discussions for the Synod because everyone is supposed to be involved in the Synod. So it's a small story, but it has a lot of implications. It gives us some insight into Pope Francis, it puts some context around these decades of ministry to people and to LGBTQ people. And gives me a little bit of hope, quite honestly, that maybe there is some movement on this. I know there are people who would see it differently. But for those of us that support our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, I think it gives me a little bit of hope.
2: Well, and I think Pope Francis, both what's revealed in the correspondence, what we've known. Remember in 2015, during his visit to the United States, at the, at the time, Archbishop Vigano created this scene with the, the clerk from Kentucky who wanted to deny same-sex registrations for marriage in the state. And Pope Francis was basically being used as a tool. And then the Vatican released images and and confirmed that Pope Francis had met with a former student of his who is um, a man who's married to another man who lives in the U.S. now. And Pope Francis continues to be good friends with him and in communication with him. I I think one of the lessons here, and and what we see is a model for pastoral encounter, and it goes back to that second point, you know, I was mentioning a moment ago, and that Sister um, Janine talks about, which is a lot of these bishops, they just, they don't know that they know gay or, or trans people, and... I think they're afraid to do that because because meeting another is transformative. It's not theoretical. It's not abstract anymore. And so it's easier to rest in stereotype and make judgments and denunciations and and commit erasure, as David was saying earlier. And so I I think Sister Janine has talked about the many times over the decades, oftentimes very quietly, very privately, very discreetly, she has facilitated encounters where Certain archbishops or maybe more conservative bishops just listen. And that's isn't that, as you said, Heidi, the whole point of synodality is that we walk with one another, we listen to each other. And that is really what I think is most threatening and causes the most fear among those who, who don't want to acknowledge the reality or the complexity of human identity and existence in the world, and what God might be calling us to, which is a deeper understanding of who we are and who God is. It's a lot easier to keep everybody in pre-made boxes and stereotypes and that, that conform to, the, to, to my own comfort, perhaps. But I think Pope Francis models, hey, let's listen to one another, especially those whose experiences are different. But I do believe a lot of people, it's willful ignorance. I don't want to know is, is what, what we see played too often.
0: Well, we know that you listeners definitely do want to know, and we're glad that you're with us on this journey. We will certainly be coming back to these questions uh, in the new year. But for right now, we're going to leave the conversation here. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Horan. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Evening came, and morning followed the last episode of the season. That's right. We've reached the last episode of season nine. And given that we are quickly approaching the end of another academic semester and are just a few weeks away from celebrating Christmas and the new year, we've decided it might be good to end this podcast episode, particularly and podcast season generally, with a look back over the year 2021. The year began with the world entering the second year of global pandemic, a previously unthinkable insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, the inauguration of a new U.S. president, ongoing controversies arising within the U.S. Bishops' Conference, the successful development of a COVID-19 vaccine, the release of Ted Lasso Season 2, and so much more. So let's take a little bit of time to look back and look ahead at what was memorable for each of us this year, globally, locally, ecclesially, and personally. When you think back on the year 2021, what comes to mind? What are you hoping for as we venture towards 2022? Dan, let's start with you.
2: Oh, my gosh. I don't even know where to begin. So this is the segment of the episode where we go for about eight or nine hours, right, to to try to recap everything that's happened. It's interesting. In in your introduction there, David, you listed a couple things, including, most famously, Ted Lasso season two. But, you know, most of that stuff happened within the first few weeks of the new year. I mean, the pandemic, the insurrection, the inauguration, and famously, it was the day of the inauguration that the U.S. bishops began this whole communion controversy, right, with the statement of Archbishop Gomez as president of the USCCB kind of lashing out with this really aggressive press release. And there's been so much that's happened since then. I honestly, I'm overwhelmed as I look back over 2021. It it was different than 2022. I mean, one thing that I feel like it's a both and, right? What What a truly kind of Catholic way to think about a year, both in positive and negative ways, right? So for every negative experience, I think there were silver linings. We entered the second year of a global pandemic, exhausted, more isolated than we had been before. But within the first few weeks of of the new uh, calendar year, the vaccine was rolling out. And so, but- as the vaccine is rolled out, there's been this insane pushback and denialism and anti-vax movement that, that just boggles the mind. So I, I see a lot of these sort of two sides of the coin experiences. We, we had a new election, election of a new U.S. president after four years that I think even if you are somebody who supported former President Trump, those were very difficult years before the pandemic. And very, it's been very controversial, our experience in this country and our experience as a global community member. And yet we had the insurrection, you know, so there's this back and forth is one of the things that comes to mind for me right away. It's hard for me to think of something that was expressly bad on its own without perhaps a silver lining, which may be positive, but it's hard for me to see something that's like unmitigatingly great. (laughs) Maybe Ted Lasso season two, you know, uh, that's, that's my initial sense. What What are you two thinking as you're looking back, like in terms of the broad perspective?
1: Well, 2021 will be the year that I finally watched Ted Lasso season one. So I'm finally catching up to the rest of you. And we just started season two last week. So yeah, as a reporter an editor, I've already had to do some looking back over the past years. We commission a a couple of of end-of-the-year pieces that'll run at the National Catholic Reporter towards the end of the year, including We Vote, Come to Discernment as editors for a Newsmaker of the Year, which I can't release yet, but we had to do a lot of thinking back over the past year for that. And as a member of the Religion News Writers Association, we vote on the top 10 religion news stories of the year. Of course, that involves all religions, not just Catholicism. But there are a number of Catholic stories that were on that list. So, for example, Obviously, the inauguration of Biden as the Catholic president, a church-going president, and the January 6th insurrection involving so many religious people. But also, remember, we had the change from Pope Francis about trying to pull back a little bit about the Latin Mass, which was big news in Catholic circles. Here at the end of the year, we had the oral arguments that may be moving us towards some sort of pulling back or even outright reversal of Roe versus Wade and the issue of abortion returning to the States. That's going to probably be a bigger story next year than it is this year. We had the sex abuse report from France with those astronomical numbers of number of people abused or priests involved. I think what strikes me, and I was just glancing a little bit over the topics that we've discussed on the podcast every two weeks this past season and the previous season is the this the topic that comes up it seems to me over and over is the continued polarization in our church between traditionalist or conservative or right wing Catholics and those on the left. And Dan, I like that you see some hope maybe in in stories as well, because I tend to get discouraged reporting about that over and over again and not seeing a lot of change or improvement on that yet. But that does seem to be the story. And it's seeped into what continues to be. I don't even know if this is news anymore. It's our just day to day existence, which is COVID and trying to stay protected from that and healthy and deal with taking care of not only ourselves, but people around us who might be more susceptible to the virus. So kind of a crazy year all around, but maybe not as crazy as last year. So that's our barometer now. Well,
0: and as I look back, part of what I'm realizing is how much my entire physical being has gotten used to the small bubble that we've all been living in. And I say that because now that my kids are both fully vaccinated and my wife and I are not only vaccinated, but also boosted, I've begun to venture back out into face-to-face events and meetings. And so, for example, a couple of weeks ago, I had my first on-campus event. You know, it was a, it was a distanced, masked meeting of several faculty members talking about some structural issues in the department where I teach. It was an excellent meeting, time well spent, but it took me physically two days to recover from that. I like came home and was a zombie the next day. And then even going into the weekend, just was still feeling the kind of hangover effects of being social. And so that's one thing that I'm carrying forward into 2022 is my body is different than it used to be with regards to how I can weather social activities and how I can move in social spaces. So I think that my reentry into the world is going to be slower than maybe I had hoped, because in good Ignatian fashion, I'm trying to pay real attention to that data. So that's one thing that I'm carrying from 2021 into 2022. The other thing that I'm carrying is uh, strangely kind of a narrative piece, and that is Those that follow me on Twitter know that me and the people that I converse with a lot on Twitter really got distracted a few months ago by a mini series on Netflix called Midnight Mass. And... I have not actually had a piece of media or a piece of popular culture spur the kinds of conversations, deep theological reflections, and real kind of honest soul-searching that this particular piece of art did. So I'm incredibly thankful for that because it made me think about and talk differently to some of the people that I'm relating to on social media. And it made me realize that at least right now, Twitter, for me, is a good place to think, and to have new ideas and to be surprised in new conversations. So that's something else that I'm carrying forward. I hope that 2022, I mean, on here on the, the podcast, we've talked a little bit about things like Inside by Bo Burnham, and we've talked a little bit about Midnight Mass, but I'm hoping that 2022 has more kind of evocative media pieces that make us think about these bigger questions of what it means right now to be a culture in flux, and in flux not only around our health, but around our economy economy around our religion around all those pieces and so those are some things that i'm carrying forward i'm actually very thankful for that second piece midnight mask kicked my butt in some really good ways and i'm still thinking about it i still haven't seen that
2: I've seen all the uh, talk about it, but yeah, maybe that's something for the Christmas break to put on my list, even though it's probably more of a Halloween than it is a Christmas.
0: (laughs) Strangely, though, it's got Easter overtones, too, so it's a multi-holiday kind of uh, footprint that it
2: has. How about personally? So we've touched on this a little bit, Heidi, especially you gave us a roundup of some of the top religion stories, many of which we've discussed during the season throughout the fall. I mean, are there things that are are memorable, notable for you uh, as a family, as an individual, professionally, personally, as you look back in 2021?
1: Yeah. So in 2021, we were able to get out and spend more time with our family and friends. So my kids are a little bit older than yours, David, so they were able to get vaccinated back in June. So that's been part of the memory, too, of being able to get back together and see folks more than the previous year and a half. It does all start to be a blur. My kids are moving into being teenagers. They're involved in extracurriculars now. We're looking at high school applications. And so I'm really starting to feel the craziness of being a working parent and things at at NCR just don't ever seem to slow down. So nothing is sticking out with me specifically, except to just know that I'm very grateful that my family and most of our friends have good health and we're still able to be spending time with them. What about you, David? Anything personally that you're remembering from the year?
0: So again, I think having more reliance on a, a cloud of witnesses. And what I mean by that is you know, the people that are not necessarily in my immediate physical space. And I'm very thankful for my family, the four of us, plus my two parents-in-law that live nearby. That has been an amazing kind of resource for me. And we've been really growing as a family and an extended family during this time, which I'm incredibly grateful for. We've done a lot of work on how to get along, which is really pleasant. But I have also found myself reaching out a lot to people on social media and really making deepened connections there. And I've been really Pleasantly surprised, and we've talked about this a little bit on the show before. Where you know I kind of wear some of my struggles on my sleeve, and I've talked about it here on on the podcast. But also, there are times when I turn outward to social media and I say I'm having a rough day. Can you pray about this? Or I'm I, I kind of lead with something that is an invitation to others to step in and, and give support. And what I've found is that there's an incredible community out there, of very supportive people. And I think sometimes social media it's a bad rap, but I have found it to be just an incredible space for connection, for deep thinking, and for kind of soul repair, if that's not too big a word to use. So I'm incredibly thankful for that as well. And I know that some of those people are also Francis Effect listeners, so just let me say, y'all rock. (laughs) Thank you.
2: I second that. You know, I'll say, too, that two... This has been what feels like a whirlwind to me. This 2021 could be a decade with all the stuff that's gone on. It did feel, it reminded me a bit of 2017, if you'll recall, you know, that began in the new year with the inauguration of Donald Trump. Right away, we had the Muslim ban, the protests, the Women's March. There was a lot of stuff right from, and it just never stopped from that point onward. It's hard to imagine a non-pandemic time when all this kind of stuff was happening. But 2021, so, this, so there's the global dimension. I think personally, too, you know, two really important things happened to me in my personal and ministerial life um, and professional life, which is I spent much of the summer in Rome as the theological advisor, the the priestess to the Franciscan order for our general chapter and the election of a new minister general. It, It all being done in the context of a a COVID-19 bubble, a a tested vaccinated bubble that brought together 140 friars from every part of the world. And it was famously the first such international gathering in the church since the pandemic began. And so so that was pretty significant. While I was there, we were supposed to have a, an audience with the Holy Father. But f- again, people will recall that he was in the hospital for uh, a, a several days undergoing surgery. So that was a real bummer. But it was also interesting to be in, in the city at the same time. And then shortly thereafter, I moved institutions and started this new position as a faculty member here at St. Mary's and as the director of the Center for Spirituality, and it has been just absolutely wonderful. It's been great to be here. The South Bend community is is unique. Heidi would know as a domer herself, but there's something special about this place, the tri-campus community in particular, and St. Mary's College especially, and uh, the Center for Spirituality, we're doing lots of exciting things. So, so I'm really grateful for that, but I'm also looking forward to, and maybe this is a good way for us to reflect a little bit on what we're hoping when we come back for season 10, and it's 2022. What are we hoping that looks like?
1: Well, I can say one thing I'm hoping for in 22 is to get back into doing some work travel. Because even though I know for you, Dan, you've gotten back into that, starting with Rome and some other trips, I have not done much with work travel. And it really is hard not being out there. Uh, connecting with folks like you, David. I connect with a lot of people virtually, not only through social media, but through uh, various types of Zoom meetings. And I've done some talks that have been virtual, but I really um, get a lot of energy from being out and meeting folks in person and connecting and networking with people. So I hope that starts up soon. I have a couple things on my calendar already for spring, and I hope that the virus cooperates so that those things can go forward. And I don't know, I don't make predictions, but it would be nice if we had some good news in the new year on some of the things that have been bad news in the past. I particularly continue to be concerned for our democratic institutions here in this country and the way they're being chipped away at. It's easy to get numb to some of the things that are happening or to get used to it. And I think it's something that I'm going to bring some more editorial attention to in the new year. What about you, David?
0: Well, I'm looking forward to the chance to maybe travel again. I think that I've mentioned here on the program that out in Anaheim at the L.A. Religious Education Congress, I really enjoy going to that event but also there's a little place near the hotel where I stay every year where I get breakfast burritos. And I've been having a physical craving for those breakfast burritos for several months now. So I'm looking forward to getting back to Anaheim and getting a chance to enjoy and indulge in that. And also just as you said, Heidi, the chance to actually get out and interact with people. You know, a lot of what I do in my audio work is to travel for clients and to be in various situations recording important and kind of key voices in the social justice movement, particularly some of those voices that are starting to go up in years. Uh, Some of the work that I did before the pandemic was getting a chance to record people like Ruby Sales and other sort of luminaries of the social justice and uh, civil rights movements. I'm looking forward to the chance to get out and do more of that kind of work because I think that kind of preservation of voices is incredibly important. And in order to do that, a lot of times you have to be physically in the space with the people to do it. So that's my hope for 2022 is the chance for more kind of opportunities to get out and do archival and preservationary work that really is very close to my heart.
2: Yeah, I'm always looking forward to traveling. It was interesting. It was exactly one calendar year from the time that I last traveled, which was to see my family for for my dad, a surprise birthday party for my dad, who had a, a birthday milestone. And that was a wonderful experience. What a great way. Who knew with the indefinite feel of 2020 when people would get together again? We had no idea. And the miracle of the vaccine, and I, I use that term advisedly because it was a miracle, the, 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 the speed with which the technology and the science community got us to a place where we can be together again. That for me, I was really fortunate. I was blessed to, for that to be exactly one calendar year. It was the first weekend in March in in 2021 that I was outside the double-dose, fully vaccinated realm, and I was able to travel once again. And the, the, the there was something, there are certainly, again, back to my spirit of both and, the pro and the con, there were lots of positive things that arose amid the difficulty and, and, and challenge of the pandemic, especially in 2020. But I am, like you both, grateful to be able to travel and to do so as safely as possible. But I look forward to a time where I don't have to be wearing a mask for basically all day through uh, an airport terminal and sitting on a plane especially those you know that Rome flight was it's a long time to wear a mask (laughs) and so yeah
1: And I hope my kids don't have to wear masks forever in school as well. One news story of the year that I forgot to mention earlier in this segment was the COP meeting in Scotland and the environmental concerns. And it just reminds me that as we're recording today over the weekend, we had those terrible storms and so many people dead in Kentucky and Tennessee and even Southern Illinois. So just a shout out that we're remembering all of the people who are suffering down there and their prayers and all of the ministries and Many people who will be working over the days to try to help people who've lost their homes and are injured and lost their lives. But my fear is that our future will include more of these terrible weather events that that so seriously affect folks. And I hope our future shows that we're going to be addressing that issue going forward.
2: Yeah, I, I want to, as somebody, you two are both in Illinois. I'm here in, in northern Indiana, and I think about our neighbors to the south here in Kentucky and, and to the west with Illinois. All that devastation. And I just heard this morning that meteorologists are forecasting unseasonably large winter storms to hit the West Coast going from Idaho all the way down to California. And I think sometimes people think of California, they think of LA, and they forget about this is where the Donner Party got stuck in the Sierra Mountains. And there's going to be, as, as one uh, meteorologist said on, on NPR this morning, you're going to be measuring the snow in yardsticks. Um, and this is very early and very unusual. So I think, Heidi, you're exactly right. The thing about the w- kind of weird climate change consequences that we see manifested in these weather patterns, I think the devastation of the tornado is case in point. One tornado stayed in existence for 200 miles across the state of Kentucky, which was never seen before, at least that's my understanding. So yeah, prayers for all those who've been affected, for our friends on the West Coast with the rain and the snow that's coming, and for all of us moving forward, let's be serious about our ecological conversion.
0: Well, we know that you all have had quite a year and that you may be looking ahead to things in 2022. We'd love to hear about it if you want to share it with us on social media or send us an email. We always like to get those kinds of things from you. And please know that you, our listeners, are in our prayers as we move forward into the Christmas season. And we're very grateful that you have been with us on this particular journey with the Francis Effect. Heidi, Father Dan, it's great to see you. Happy Advent and Merry Christmas to you both, and I look forward to being back with you in the new year. See you next year.
1: See you next season and next year.
0: Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout-out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash FrancisFXPod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at FrancisFXPod, and our website is also FrancisFXPod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.